0: M S O W Media. A big shout out today to Helix Sleep. Take their two-minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Go to HelixSleep.com slash dailybeans and use promo code HelixPartner. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, Better Sleep Starts Now. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Today, Jack Smith has amassed a mountain of new evidence in the documents obstruction case. Founding member of the Fujis, Pros Michel is on trial for his crimes related to the Jolo 1 MDB case. Preparations are underway for Donald's arraignment in Manhattan this Tuesday, and the Manhattan District Attorney's office has sent another heated letter to House Republicans. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everybody. Dana's out. She's going to be out for a while. So it's just me today, although I do have some pretty cool guest hosts lined up for this week. So just some funny stuff going on over on Twitter. I don't know if you know, if you spend any time on Twitter, but Elon had said he was going to take everyone's legacy blue check mark away. He was going to take the stars off of the snitches' bellies on April 1st. And then uh, he didn't, although he did take away New York Times's check mark. The actual New York Times took away their check mark, while, by the way, Fox gets to keep theirs, even though they have admitted to lying about stuff on TV. And uh, so that was supposed to happen April first. It didn't happen for everybody. And so today I went to check. You know, if you click on the blue check mark in somebody's bio, you can see whether they're a Twitter blue subscriber, whether they pay for that check mark or whether it's a legacy check mark. It says this is a a legacy blue check mark. It could be notable or not. And then the Twitter, this is if you click on it and they're a blue subscriber, it says this account is verified because it subscribes to Twitter blue. So something happened today (laughs) on Sunday where he changed that verbiage. Now, if you click on the blue check mark, whether you've paid for it or whether you're a legacy blue check mark, whether you earned it, it just says this account is verified because it either subscribes to Twitter Blue or is a legacy blue check mark. So he's kind of lumped everybody in together. So now you can no longer tell who is verified because they subscribe or who is verified because they were a legacy blue check mark. It's absolutely ridiculous. He's making shit up as he goes along. He he's such a narcissist. He thinks that, you know, you ever had that boss, the new boss, who comes in and thinks they have all these great new ideas, but they've already been tried out and failed, but they want to do it anyway, and then it fucks shit up. And then you have to say, look, we already tried that. We have the best practices. This is why we do it this way now. That just seems like what he's doing. He just he gets an idea, it backfires on him magnificently because nobody was going to pay for the White House, wasn't going to pay for that check mark. CNN wasn't going to pay for the check mark once they, he took away all the check marks. Uh, I certainly wasn't, and most people weren't. They were like, "Fucking take it, fine, whatever." Um, now it'll be the the sneetches without the stars on their bellies that <laughs> you know that are the uh, legacy blue check mark accounts or whatever the fuck. It's so ridiculous, but he just keeps making he. So he did made that decision. It fucked shit up. People were mad. It backfired on him. So now he's made the decision, I guess, maybe not to take away legacy checkmarks and just call everybody a blue check mark. Well, it's either legacy or Twitter blue. It's absolutely ridiculous. He's like a fucking nine year old and the, the wheels are falling. It's like a Tesla. It caught fire spontaneously and the wheels are falling off. So that's happening over on Twitter and everybody is laughing about it. And uh, also later in the show today, I want to let you know I'm going to be talking to CNN senior legal analyst Joan Biskupik. She's been covering the Supreme Court now for over 25 years. She has a new book out tomorrow called Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. So I'll chat with her. Uh, and we have tons of news to get to from over the weekend, as you can imagine. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Hot notes. All right. From Barrett, Dossie and Stein at The Washington Post, absolutely devastating news for Donald Trump in the special counsel investigation into his obstruction of the government's retrieval of classified documents from Mar-a-Lago. We knew that boxes had been moved from the storage room downstairs thanks to surveillance footage subpoenaed by the Department of Justice. But what we are now learning is that Jack Smith apparently has evidence that Donald looked through some of those boxes himself. This is a significant development in the case. Let's read some key passages from this amazing story, amazing reporting from the Post. In the classified documents case, federal investigators have gathered new and significant evidence that after the subpoena was delivered, Trump looked through the contents of some of the boxes of documents in his home, apparently out of a desire to keep certain things in his possession, according to people familiar. Investigators now suspect, based on witness statements, security camera footage, and other documentary evidence that boxes, including classified material, were moved from a -a Mar-a-Lago storage area after the subpoena was served, and that Trump personally examined at least some of those boxes. In addition, authorities have another category of evidence that they've got. They consider it particularly helpful as they reconstruct events from last spring. Emails and texts from Molly Michael. She's an assistant to the former guy who followed him from the White House to Florida before she eventually left the job last year. Michael's written communications have provided investigators with a detailed understanding of the day to day activity at Mar a Lago at critical moments. Investigators have also amassed evidence indicating that Trump told others to mislead government officials in early 2022, before the subpoena, when the National Archives was working with the DOJ to try to recover a wide range of papers. The Post says here, That might not constitute a crime, but I say it does. Obstruction has to be against an official proceeding, and the National Archives has cops and investigators. So prosecutors have collected evidence that Trump ignored requests from multiple advisors to return the documents to the archives over a period of a year. He ignored requests from multiple advisors to do that. Then he asked advisors and lawyers to release false statements, claiming he'd returned all the documents. And then he grew angry after being subpoenaed for those same documents. Investigators also have evidence that Trump sought advice from other lawyers and advisors on how he could keep documents after being told by some on his team that he could not, according to people familiar. They have collected evidence that multiple advisors warned Trump that trying to keep the documents could be legally perilous, so he knew. Now, investigators have also asked witnesses If Trump showed a particular interest in material relating to General Mark Milley, that's chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and how do they know that? Were some of the documents found in his desk documents about Mark Milley? Well, here it says prosecutors have been asking witnesses if Trump showed classified documents, including maps, to political donors. Did the donors know that he had some interest in Milley documents? Can he show classified documents to donors? I mean, it's just the amount of evidence here is overwhelming. And I'm going to talk about the implications of this evidence in depth with Andy McCabe on the next episode of the Jack podcast, which you can listen to for free. There's a new episode out now, but this information won't be coming out until the next episode of Jack, along with whatever other Jack uh, Smith news we get this week. It's already heating up to be pretty interesting on the next episode, which comes out next Sunday. All right, up next from Carol Lenning, et al., at The Post. Former President Trump plans to fly to New York Monday and stay the night before appearing in a specially secured Manhattan courthouse to be arraigned on still unspecified criminal charges. An advanced team of Secret Service agents, mostly comprised of New York field office agents, conducted a site tour of the courthouse Friday to map Trump's path in and out of the building. Uh, Please, no ramps or umbrellas. (laughs) An official who spoke on the condition of anonymity said that dozens and dozens of agents will be required to secure the former president's travel between Mar-a-Lago and his Florida home and private club and New York. Now, according to some reports, he was supposed to come on Thursday, but Secret Service said that that was too fast, which doesn't make any sense, but whatevs. The next step in the criminal proceeding is Trump's arraignment, which multiple people involved with the plans have said will happen on Tuesday afternoon, 2.15 p.m. Eastern time. The former president will be fingerprinted, photographed, and then brought to the courtroom of Supreme Court Justice Juan Mershon upon surrendering before the proceeding, where he is expected to enter a not guilty plea during arraignment. If the charges have not already been unsealed, they will be unsealed at the time of arraignment. Now, multiple news outlets have asked, they've petitioned Judge Mershon to unseal the charges ahead of the arraignment for the reason being the public's right to know. Intense public, you know, need to know. Now, in securing Trump's safety, Secret Service agents will be primarily responsible for his entry to and exit from the courthouse. Now, court security officers will manage the former president's movements once inside the building in the company of Trump's security detail. And New York police officers will secure the outside streets surrounding the courthouse and along Trump's motorcade route through the city. The streets around the courthouse will be blocked off to traffic and street parking will be suspended. Court security officers who had scheduled vacation days or time off have been asked to report for duty anyway. No vacation for you. All hands on deck. So that's what's happening Tuesday, tomorrow, 2.15 p.m. Eastern in New York. In a related story from Axios, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in a letter on Friday urged House Republicans committee chairs for some of the House Republicans to denounce former Trump's harsh rhetoric. The letter comes a day after a New York grand jury voted to indict him, prompting a bombastic reaction from the former guy. The letter to the Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan and Oversight Committee Chair James Comer and House Administration Committee Chair Brian Steele cited Trump's warning about death and destruction in response to an indictment you could use the stature of your office to denounce these attacks and urge respect for the fairness of our justice system and for the work of the impartial grand jury. That's what Bragg's general counsel, Leslie Duback. Instead, she said, you and many of your colleagues have chosen to collaborate with Trump's efforts to vilify and denigrate the integrity of elected state prosecutors and trial judges and made unfounded allegations that the office's investigation is politically motivated. They keep calling it Soros-backed. And, and the truth of the matter is Soros gave a million dollars to a political fund that then divvied it up amongst Democrats in New York. So Soros never directly contributed to Alvin Bragg's campaign. Dubeck then urged the trio of Republicans to refrain from these inflammatory accusations and let the criminal justice process proceed without unlawful political interference. The letter also aimed to counter the reaction of Trump's Republican allies in Congress to the indictment. Quote, like any other defendant, Mr. Trump is entitled to challenge these charges in court and avail himself of all processes and protections that New York state's robust criminal procedure affords. She wrote. Also, she continues saying what neither Mr. Trump nor Congress may do is interfere with the ordinary course of proceedings in New York state. So that letter went out. It's a five-page letter. I highly recommend you read it. It's pretty incendiary. All right, for those who've been listening to my murder board dot connecting since the early days of Mueller, she wrote, we are now in the early stages of the trial of one Michelle. This is from Paul Duggan at The Post. A quarter century ago, as a member of the pioneering hip-hop trio The Fugees, Michelle basked in the glow of two Grammy Awards the group received for its mega-platinum 1996 album, The Score. This was the peak of his celebrity. After he, Wycliffe Jean, and Lauryn Hill split up in 97, Michelle's solo career waned. He was running out of money. He shifted to other profit-making ventures, including uh, a prosecutor said Thursday, illegally funneling $2 million in stolen foreign money into a U.S. presidential campaign. It was Obama's campaign. And scheming to quash an FBI investigation of the corrupt Malaysian financier who supplied the cash. Praz Michelle, who turned 50 last fall, was rap royalty back in the day. Now clad in a dark suit and a striped tie, he sat in a federal courtroom in Washington on trial in one of the many legal cases arising tangentially from a gargantuan crime, the looting of roughly $4.5 billion with a B from Malaysia's state-owned investment and development fund known as 1MDB. The scandal has touched scores of people, some famous whose names are likely to be heard in testimony in U.S. district court over the next month. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kim Kardashian, Steve Wynn, the casino guy. Many people have become entangled in this money. Wittingly or unwittingly, in what authorities say were plots to launder vast sums of pilfered money, gain influence in the White House during the Obama and Trump administrations, and short circuit a years long Justice Department probe related to Malaysian embezzlement. Some defendants charged in the sprawling investigation have made deals with prosecutors. One of them, Elliot Broidy. He was described by Lockhart in court as the fixer. She said the fixer sought to use his access to President Trump in 2018 to advance one of several criminal conspiracies tied to the thievery in Malaysia. After Broidy pled guilty in the case, admitting to illegally lobbying for foreign nationals, Trump pardoned him on his last full day of his presidency. Pras Michel has pled not guilty to a 12-count indictment that accuses him of money laundering, campaign finance violations, acting as an unregistered agent for foreign nationals, witness tampering, and lying to banks. In one scheme, in 2012, Michel received almost $18 million from Joe Lowe, the Malaysian financier. Authorities have described Lowe as among the looters of the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB. They say he used the stolen money to pay for a lavish lifestyle in the U.S., including bacchanalian parties with celebrities, supermodels, and movers and shakers in New York and Hollywood and elsewhere. He met, Joe Lowe met, Pras Michelle at a Manhattan nightclub. Jolo, now charged with numerous federal crimes himself, is a fugitive from justice believed to be in China. In court filings, prosecutors said Jolo cozied up to DiCaprio, allowing the actor to gamble on his tab at a Las Vegas casino, giving him pricey artwork, a Picasso, namely, which he had to give back, and arranging financing for the 2013 movie The Wolf of Wall Street. DiCaprio starred in that film. He was also co-producer. By 2017, however, the fast-living financier was under investigation in the United States and other countries in connection with the 1MDB embezzlement. Quote, Lowe was in trouble and Lowe needed help. That's what Lockhart said in her opening statement. So he turned again to Pras Michel. This is where Brody, the fixer came in, Lockhart said. After Trump took office in 2017, Brody was named deputy finance chair of the RNC under Steve Wynn, the casino mogul, who was the finance chair, And as Pras Michel tried to come up with a way to assist JOLO, he was introduced to Elliot Broidy by an acquaintance, according to the indictment. Lockhart said the fixer, Broidy, for a price, agreed to urge federal officials to shut down the Justice Department's 1MDB-related investigation of JOLO. The conspirators' deal with the Malaysian money man, quote, an $8 million retainer fee up front and an additional $75 million success fee if the matter were resolved— within 180 days, or $50 million if the matter was resolved within a year. That's what the indictment says. It says their written contract was disguised as a legal fees agreement for helping Lowe with a civil forfeiture case. The true purpose, though, was to secure Brody's services to lobby the administration and the Department of Justice to end the investigation. While that effort failed, Lockhart said, the conspirators took another approach to help Joe JOLO. This involved a labyrinthine plot to curry favor with the Chinese government in hopes that Beijing would assist Jolo in resolving his global legal woes. And to that end, Broidy again lobbied the Trump White House, this time seeking the deportation of Guo Wengwei. That sounds familiar. He's the yacht guy where Bannon was arrested. Quote, it almost worked. She said the fixer himself met with the president at the White House seeking Guo's extradition. Ultimately, even though Guo wasn't deported, Michelle received over 70 million dollars from JOLO. Guo has since been indicted by a federal grand jury in New York on an unrelated financial fraud case. That's all happening. All right, everybody, I'll be right back with Joan Piscupic. We're going to discuss her new book, Nine Black Robes. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
1: After these messages, will be right.
0: Do you struggle to get a good night's sleep like I do? Well, Helix Sleep can help you sleep better and wake up feeling refreshed. I know because that's what Helix Sleep has done for me over the last couple of years. All you got to do is go to helixsleep.com dailybeans and take their two minute online sleep quiz and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. After taking the Helix Sleep Quiz, I got my perfect match, the Helix Midnight, because I'm a side sleeper and I like medium firmness in my bed. It's been a game changer for my sleep, my life. I feel more rested and refreshed every morning thanks to my Helix mattress. But Helix understands that everyone's sleep needs are unique, which is why they offer several mattress models with varying levels of firmness. They have soft, medium, and firm. They also have mattresses for plus size sleepers, the Helix Plus, and there's options with cooling technology for hot sleepers. Whatever your sleep preferences, Helix has the perfect mattress for you. Backside sleeper, uh, whatever, any other type of sleeper, they have a mattress for you. So if you need a mattress, go take the quiz, order the mattress you're matched to. It'll come right to your door, shipped for free. Uh, mattresses have a 10 or 15 year warranty, depending on the model. You can get to try it out for a hundred sleeps with no risk. They'll come pick it up if you don't love it, but you will. Uh, and you don't have to take my word for it. Wired Magazine named Helix best overall mattress in 2021 and GQ Home Awards called them their favorite mattress in 2022. With over a billion hours slept on Helix mattresses and 12,000 five-star reviews, you can trust that Helix delivers on their promise of a great night's sleep. And right now, Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans and use promo code HELIXPARTNER. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm happy today to be joined by CNN senior legal analyst, Supreme Court expert. She's been covering the court for 25 years now, and she has a new book out called Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Please welcome Joan Biskupic. Hi, Joan. Hi, Allison. Great to be with you. I am really excited to talk to you about this book. I love this book. You know, I've been discussing the the push to the right on the court that's been going on for a very long time, for a while now on this show. I know I've spoken to folks like Ellie uh, Mastal and Ellie uh, Honig and and other people who who watch the court. And um, something about your book that, that really struck me is is how it's put together. And I was wondering what kind of prompted you to to write this book? What, what was it that you wanted? What message did you want to get out?
2: I first came up with the idea back in late 2019 after I had finished my book on the Chief Justice. And I had sort of run out of interesting individual figures who I wanted to get into. And I thought... I, I thought a little bit about doing a group portrait because I could feel that they were under a lot of pressure from Trump. By then, we had had two of the Trump appointees on, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And I could I, my original idea, Allison, was to sort of look at the court from the inside, the maneuvering within chambers, the pacts made, the deal making and how they how they came up with decisions at a time when they were under such political pressure. So that was my original idea. But then what happens is that we have this unusual situation in 2021 and 22, first with COVID and the Trump effect just becomes deeper and deeper with his third appointment after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then all of a sudden we've got Dobbs center stage. So I was going chronologically, as you can tell. But once the court accepted the Dobbs case, I said to my publishers, look, I'm not going to be able to submit this manuscript on time. I need to wait to see what they've done. And as I was you know, preparing for that case and doing that for my regular old daily work at CNN, I realized that I had laid so much of the groundwork in the book, even though this book wasn't going to be about abortion. You know, we had had that, as you probably remember well, in 2020, we had had the Louisiana abortion case. And it was, you know, it was an important case, but it was no... It was nothing compared to what we got in Dobbs. And the interesting thing was when I, I, I bought some time <laughs> through the publisher to you know not submit this until uh, the first week in July when we had gotten the, the abortion ruling, whatever that was going to be. And I thought, oh, my God, am I going to have to rewrite much? But I realized that I'd actually seen things I didn't know I saw. You know, I was one of those people, Allison, who kept saying, you know, maybe the chief is going to be able to pull something out. Maybe the chief is going to get Kavanaugh to come over for some sort of middle ground ruling. And I know abortion rights activists don't even think about a decision being middle ground if it were to uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban, but it would have been a lot better than what they, what we all got. So I was originally prompted with trying to bring people inside the court. So much was being written about the Trump effect on politics, on the nation's psyche, on on so much of what was happening in America. And I wanted to use the sort of access I have to bring people inside. And then it turned out that the court, frankly, gave me a much better story. In fact, the title, Nine Black Robes, was just a working title that I never really was high on at all. I thought, eh, I don't know if I like this. But by the time we got to Dobbs, it just felt like the right kind of title.
0: Yeah, because you said you, you were sort of like laying out the road, the path, uh, you know, uh, to w- where we are now with with decisions like the Dobbs decision. And, you know, when I read Ellie's uh, book, you know, he said that the Dobbs court, it looks more like the Dred Scott court than the Loving court. The only difference is that they have the Federalist Society giving them talking points, which I thought was a, f- a very fascinating way to, to lay this out. And, you know, talk to Mary Trump about, you know, in her book, The Reckoning, going all the way back to Reconstruction and how the court has been since then. But you also talk about some of the history of the potential leaks in the Supreme Court, particularly with the LGBTQ plus Title VII decision and Alito's scathing dissent there that uh, that you quote uh, in, in your book. And to me, that just that like when you talk about laying the path to where we are now, I mean, I can't think of a better path than that. Talking about the leaks, talking about Alito's dissent, talking about that decision and that the potential leak may have been to put public pressure on the court. Talk a little bit about about that and how that how how we have now like sort of come full circle. Sure. And
2: what you're referring to is when some of us heard a bit in early 2020 that the uh, LGBTQ Title VII case was going in favor of uh, the petitioners who wanted expansion. Well, actually, it was the, it was the company's challenging it in favor of gay rights advocates and employees who wanted expansion of Title VII. And that was originally information was passed on to a few key reporters, but the Wall Street Journal ran with it in an editorial. And used its editorial to put pressure on conservatives inside not to not to do anything big and expansive on Title VII. They had no effect on that. But Mm. Alito was so angry about that moment. He was angry at the fact that uh, the chief and Justice Gorsuch joined with the four liberals at the time to have a more expansive reading of Title VII to cover people. Who want to challenge uh, any kind of action in the workplace based on discrimination arising from sexual orientation or gender identity? So you have you have you know some leaks already coming out back then, and you have, as you just said, Allison, uh, Justice Alito being so angry at how that decision in Bostock had gone on Title VII, and then we get up to the time of Dobbs, and I remember so well everything that happened in late April up to May 2nd, the day of the, the day of the leak. First, we had an, another editorial in the Wall Street Journal yep. speculating on the fact that maybe the chief was sort of enticing someone like Brett Kavanaugh to come over to this, this uh, ground of upholding the Mississippi ban but not eviscerating Roe. And I remember at the time thinking, the Wall Street Journal has a pipeline to the court. I had known that from before. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember that editorial, but it was it was one that, that got my attention. I thought, I wonder if something's happening.
0: Oh, I do. It reminded me of the Hobby Lobby stuff that, that went on. Right?
2: Yeah. Bostock, Hobby Lobby, things that where we start to hear. And I have to say, I will admit that I often find out before a case is decided where things are going. But I never write about it because I know that at the very last minute things could change. And plus I'm usually getting information from just like one or two chambers and you know, there are nine of them. You need <laughs> you need to know like where everybody, well, at least where at least five are. So, so that gets us up to late April and people are still wondering what could possibly be happening in Dobbs. And I know you remember that when they took this case they told us they were only going to be deciding whether Mississippi's ban at 15 weeks violated Roe's viability firewall, you know, that that government could not interfere with the right to abortion up to the point of viability. And that's when the fetus can live outside the womb. But, you know, so many of us thought that we were only like in the territory of the Mississippi statute, not not, you know, all of all of Roe being reversed. But that's that's where they had what they had voted on the in December after the oral arguments in late 2021. So we find out that we start hearing these inklings, and then, of course, you get this leak, which truly was unprecedented. Even though people have talked about other leaks, but to get a ninety-eight-page document that finished yeah. from from that point of the negotiations was just stunning. And as you said, Justice Alito had been so furious about the last one where the case was going, but this one he clearly had everyone on board, and I think he probably would have kept uh, Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh. Uh, irrespective of the leak. But once the leak was out there, it locked it locked them in.
0: Right. Uh, and that's kind of sort of where I was at, too. Like, this seems like a an effort to lock these votes in. But, you know, we still don't know anything about the leak because it was uh, not really truly investigated by the court or by the marshal. And And then we found out the monetary conflict of interest between the, you know, the person who came in to give their thumbs up on how the whole investigation went, which was interesting. But I want to talk a little bit about how we got here, because, I mean, the court's been on this road since forever, but specifically and particularly with the what you call the uh, triumvirate of Don McGahn, Mitch McConnell and Leonard Leo, the you know, the three biggest influences on the shape of the court today. And you write about it. So tell us about that.
2: And, and that is what's different. When I started c- covering the court full time for The Washington Post back in 92, I remember I wrote all the time about five-four rulings, and the five conservatives were winning a lot. But those conservatives were so different than today. Two of them were Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, who today would look downright liberal, you know, compared to mm-hmm. where we've where we've gone with the federal society. But that's because of, you know. Justice Kennedy and O'Connor were not screened by the Federalist Society. They were not screened by Don McGahn. And they were, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell was around, but Mitch McConnell wasn't quite on the tear that he uh, went on after in the post-Fork era. As as you know from that that chapter, I talk about Mitch McConnell taking the floor in fall of 1987 after the Senate has voted, is about to vote down. Uh, Robert Bork. And he essentially says, you will rue this day. I will remember. I will remember. And he certainly did remember. And he pairs up with Don McGahn, who is like a generation younger, but yet grew up with the Federalist Society, you know, in in college and law school. In fact, Don McGahn speaks about how his father made him watch the Bork hearings. And then he in college watched the Clarence Thomas hearings. And that was very energizing for him. And then talk about being energized. You take someone like Leonard Leo, who just basically came on the scene, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, about a decade after the Federalist Society was founded. But he comes in with his power of networking and money raising, big money raising. And I think his his title had been like executive vice president, whatever his title was. He was he was really running things and he was generating more money for the Federalist Society agenda. And also he was just he is so great at networking and he's always been close to Mitch McConnell. And he remembered Don McGahn from when Don McGahn was president of his law school Federalist Society chapter. And they were all perfectly positioned to enable Trump when he came in. In fact, Donald Trump basically turned it all over to Leonard Leo and Don McGahn. The night of Justice Mm -hmm. Scalia's death, on February 13th, 2016, Don McGahn, first of all, Leonard Leo is right at the center of this because he gets a call from somebody in the Scalia family saying what's happening. He immediately tries to get Mitch McConnell. He is in touch with Don McGahn. Don McGahn immediately calls Donald Trump and says, take advantage of this Republican debate that was going on that night to talk about how the Senate should stall, 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 delay, delay, delay. And that's exactly what happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah and you know I've been meaning to ask an expert about this because I still don't know the answer. I'm going to shift gears here on you a little bit. There was a some video after Kavanaugh was nominated of Justice Kennedy and Donald Trump having an exchange and Justice Kennedy seemed really upset at something that Donald Trump said. And I, we're all we've all been trying to figure out what that was, but everyone seems to the, Whether it was untoward or not, everyone seems to have some suspicion about the retirement of Justice Kennedy. And I was wondering what you knew about that, if anything, or if you had any insight.
2: Okay, I think that's an excellent question because there was also a lot of talk about Justice Kennedy's son being so close to one of the Trump sons. And, you know, they were all... all And he worked at Deutsche Bank. He was was the
0: high-risk Deutsche Bank lender, was responsible for lending Trump millions, billions.
2: That's right. They all knew each other from the New York scene, And I'll I'll say this about Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy wanted one of his clerks on the court, of course, and he always was very fond of Brett Kavanaugh. But Don McGahn was also a longtime Kavanaugh person. And Don McGahn, you know, they were old friends. And Don McGahn really was the one who made sure that no one else was in serious contention against Brett Kavanaugh back in 2018, but why did Anthony Kennedy retire? I know that some people believe he retired to guarantee Brett Kavanaugh having that seat. I know that Justice Kennedy was ready to retire. He was, you know, let's see. He was born in 1936, and here we are in 2018. You know, so he's he's into his 80s. He's tired. He's He's showing some weariness and age on the bench. You know, I, don't, I, I I want to be careful about how I speak about someone, uh, you know, who is older and maybe it, 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 I believe it was time for him to retire. And I think he and his family thought it was time for him to retire. And one thing I will point to is that other justices who've left the bench tend to take on lower court cases or tend to take on book projects. And right now, Justice Kennedy isn't doing any of those things. He is speaking on occasion, but I think he was ready to pull back from real full-time work. So I think it was time for him to retire in his own mind given his age and and just how he was feeling about the job. But I also think I don't diminish the idea that he wanted someone like Brett Kavanaugh in there. And he had partners. Don McGahn wanted Brett Kavanaugh, and Don McGahn hung in there with Brett Kavanaugh when the going got rough. <laughs>
0: Yes, they they sure did. I was like, you know, they could easily just solve all this by switching their nomination to Amy Coney Barrett,
2: and they didn't. That's right. That's right. They had her in the back pocket with the idea that uh, you know they they thought, in the most basic terms, you know, when the woman retires, then we have this other woman ready, kind of thing. But you know, uh, Justice Kavanaugh had really worked very hard to stay positioned, and as you referred to the triumphant. Chapter, but I I kind of lay out his abortion decision on the D.C. Circuit that certainly got the attention of conservatives who wanted to make sure that he would be in their camp on abortion rights.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Before I let you go, one of my uh, one of the interesting parts here of the book that really stood out to me was the the bit about the bitterness among some of the justices after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and how uh, her belongings were handled can you can you talk about that
2: yes she you know Ruth
0: Bader Ginsburg was just
2: holding on as long as she could obviously you know it was when i went back and tracked all the doctors appointments she had in 2020 and you know this was after she had you know had so many different bouts of cancer the the lung cancer the pancreatic cancer the um the rectal cancer she just had so much so much cancer that she kept having to fight off. And I went to see her in January of 2020. Literally and figuratively. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I went to see her in January of 2020, uh, right before COVID. So I was meeting her in person in her chambers and she had just had a scan and she was cancer free and she was saying how happy she was about that. But then I found out that within about six weeks, it had reappeared. So so the ju- some of her colleagues knew how sick she was getting, but remember they weren't meeting in person at this point because now, as we move into spring of twenty twenty, she's feeling, you know, she's just having so much more go on, and she's going to the hospital, and you know, finally on September eighteenth, she she does die, and uh, her her staff, which had been working with her, you know, trying to keep her up to speed on cases, as she was up to speed on cases by bringing her briefs at her home, briefs to the hospital, trying to just help her along in these these final weeks and months. The staff was just really exhausted. And then they helped plan this funeral. So they they finished the funeral, the memorial services, you know, where thousands of people had come to, to town. And suddenly they're asked to clear out of the chambers. And that was very upsetting to, to many people in the court. And there was already so much bitterness about how quickly things were happening. Uh, Obviously, the the three liberals who were left just saw as if their life was going to pass before them because a six to three court is just so different than a five to four court. And they knew that. And then they saw how quickly Donald Trump was going to be able to push Amy Coney Barrett through the Senate. And they were still they still hadn't gotten over, of course, the treatment of Merrick Garland back in 2016, when Mitch McConnell had so stalled on President Obama's choice of Merrick Garland to succeed Scalia, when there were months and months and months before the election. And this was just literally a few weeks before the election.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we were all devastated by that. Um, and, and, and we were reeling from COVID and the, yeah, and the threat of a 6-3 court. Uh, absolutely. Because, as you say, that sort of relegated the chief justice to a dissent position from (laughs) from then on out. So it's going to be interesting to see how and if and what he does to try to even preserve a modicum of decent legacy for this court that he that he oversees. Well,
2: can I just mention one other thing about him real quick? Because I know,
0: of course, you know, he
2: still even though he obviously didn't get what he wanted in Dobbs and there've been other times when he w- he has been now in the dissent with the with the three remaining liberals but remember John Roberts is still very much getting exactly what he wants on things like race and religion and the uh, reigning in of regulation and, yeah. exactly right so i always try to mention that because uh John Roberts has a lot of different agendas going on and some of them are still being maximized
0: yeah that's very true Although I think more people believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows than support or approve of the Supreme Court this, <laughs> in these, this day and age. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much. Can you tell everyone when the book is available? Sure. And uh, where they can find it? Sure.
2: Thank you, Allison. This has been fun. It's called Nine Black Robes. Publication date is April 4th. Please buy it at your favorite bookstore or order it online at your favorite site. And I hope you enjoy it. And I really enjoyed our conversation today,
0: Allison. Me too. Thank you. You can also pre-order it right now if you'd like. And everybody, make sure to uh, uh, follow Joan on, on, at the socials and look for her book out April 4th. Joan Biskupic, I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Oh, near good news good news and if you have any good news confessions corrections a shout out to a local business in your area a shout out to a loved one you want to send me your pod pet pics we want to play what the mutt with us uh if you have a adoptable pet in your area if you don't have a pet tax to pay Uh, anything you want to send us at all please send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact i'm especially loving the people who are putting them the the non-destructive tape boxes and squares on their floors for their cats to sit in. It's It's so fucking funny to me. All right, first up, temporary Texans, pronouns they and them. Salutations, legume squad. Double featured today with an extremely adoptable what the mutt we're fostering in North Texas, Oklahoma area. A cygnus is a full contact snuggle master who loves flopping on stationary humans and never complains about being human handled into a cuddle. He's a loyal protector of who whoever he's currently giving food whom whoever is curr- currently giving him food and a bed, and he's overjoyed to see any of his prior caretakers. Would be a fantastic companion for a person just moving to a new area or leaving a fuller house who enjoys dog snuggles, but may appreciate having an alert defender with a full bodied bark protecting the homestead. It's about seventy-five pounds and maybe a surprise in his DNA file. <gasps> Look at this baby. Well, he's definitely got some pity in there maybe some staffy, maybe a little lab, some chow. I mean, he's just beautiful. Those eyes, they're like little jewels. All right. What do we got? Pitbull, border collie, bulldog, and super mutt. All right. I got one. <laughs> I got one right. What a beautiful baby. All right. Thank you very much uh, for that. And if you are interested in Cygnus. You can look him up, C-Y-G-N-U-S, at Emily's Legacy Rescue in Wichita Falls, Texas. All righty. Next up, from Francine, pronouns she and her. Oh, what a week for the Leguminati, indictment for Donald, and an all-in frog orgy I stumbled upon in my sister's neighborhood. There had to be about a thousand frogs. And as you can see, they're getting their frog freak on. Even more spectacular, Donald has been held accountable. Bathe in all the glory. Look at all these froggos. Ah, <gasps> oh, thank you so much for that, Francine. I appreciate you. Next up from Tony, pronouns he and him. Hello, Beans Warriors. Tony here again. I was at the Trans Day of Visibility rally. Wow, just wow. It was amazing, awesome, fabulous, and wonderful. Over a thousand trans, gay, bi, intersex kids with siblings, parents, grandparents, allies were all there. There was so much fierce love for themselves and each other, so many bright and colorful flags and signs, little kids with rainbow-painted faces, one child with flowing butterfly wings running around. I carried my giant American flag and pride flags, snapping in the wind. One veteran, a parent supporting her queer teenager, said I put her old unit to shame by carrying a bigger flag than they carried on parade. She thanked me for showing up and said if I needed a hand in the wind, she'd have my back. Speakers included organizers Faith Corallo, Singer and trans right activist Ryan Casada, human rights campaign director Kelly Robinson, and many others. A number of young people told stories of their struggles and triumphs as trans, two spirit, intersex, and in others. In Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey was there, shaking hands and taking selfies. There was such a spirit of defiance and courage and determination to support and defend each other. As an old cis het white guy, I was there to stand for my kids and all the kids under attack, and I got so much love back. I'm still high. It is so amazing seeing young people having the courage, self love, and integrity to step out in their true selves in spite of the hatred and hostility thrown in their way. I feel as if some of the despair and fear I've been feeling was purged away. I'm so grateful for what I was given yesterday. While I was in DC, I got a text from one of the people I stood with at Wadsworth asking if I would be in Chardon, Ohio, Saturday to support the drag queen story hour there that was under threat from Proud Boys and Nazis. He says, It happens. The Chardonnay event was peaceful. Only a dozen or so haters showed up, and most of them melted away when the rain started. The best chant of the day: "We're here, we're queer, we're fabulous, and don't fuck with us." Until next time, in love and resistance. Ah, oh, these photos. How wonderful and how amazing! It's got to be so good for the soul. There you are with the flag. I love your overalls, dude. This is so wonderful and beautiful. Oh, that last picture with the Capitol in the background and your flags. Tony, thank you so much for this, and thank you for standing with with the LGBTQ plus community. Mm. All right, next up from Danielle, pronouns she and her. Hello, beans queens. I am a psychologist who works with transgender youth, and I wrote in once before about my frustrations with the way media covers the issue of pediatric gender-affirming care. Well, my good news today is that Vox recently published a piece that finally says all the things I've been waiting for, The article is titled, Trans People Deserve Better Journalism. We'll have the link in the show notes. I also want to thank my wonderful partner, Brian, Kitchen Table Days listener. Hi, Brian, who not only introduced me to the Daily Beans, but when I was wondering how to spread visibility for this article, he immediately suggested sharing it with the amazing Daily Beans community. Thank you, AG and DG, for all the work you do. It really keeps us going. I could not find our masking tape, but for Pet Tax, I submit two photos that show that if a square object exists, our Khaleesi will sit on it. Mother of dragons, queen of sitting on squares. Oh, she's beautiful. Maine Coon. There she is on a book. Oh, oh she's so pretty. And there she is on something else shaped like a square. Ooh, thank you so much for that. And we'll definitely share this article out from Vox, Daniel. I appreciate you sending that. Next up from Christy, pronouns she and her. Hello beautiful Beans Queens. I came home from work the other day to the wonderful news that an indictment happened. I just want to take this opportunity to thank you and the rest of the Beans crew for all you do to keep us informed with the truth. I used to be fearful of speaking up and standing up for my political views in my deeply red state, Ohio, jacketless Jim Jordan's district no less. Then I found the Daily Beans and MSW Media and everything changed. For pet tax, I've included three photos of my dog Sadie or as I call her Tater Tot, <laughs> one with her favorite toy, Lamb Chop. Oh, yeah, my olive loves her lamb chop, one in the onesie after her spay, and the last one of her eye surgery to correct a plugged tear duct. I have a misheard lyric to share as well. While driving the car with my then young son, the song Taking Care of Business came on the radio. As I was singing along, he joined in by singing Bacon Carrot Biscuits every day, Bacon carrot biscuits every way. I'll be baking carrot biscuits. (laughs) Now that everyone's going to say that. That's a wonderful carrot biscuits sound delicious. If you have any, send them my way. He's 34 now. I haven't let him forget it yet. Good. Oh, look at this little angel. The onesie is so cute. Oh, and the cone of shame. The eyebrows on this baby. Thank you for sending that in. And thanks to all of you for sending in the good news. Uh, I think the news is going to keep getting better and better, but I always want to hear your good news. So send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Um, It's going to be a hell of a week. I know I say that every week, but every week it's true. Uh, I'll be here with you. I'll have some fun guest hosts and uh, I will be back tomorrow in your ears to get ready for the arraignment we'll see how it goes everybody until then please take care of yourselves take care of each other take care of the planet take care of your mental health vote blue over Q and bring someone with you april 4th last day to vote in wisconsin go vote wisconsin go vote wisconsin i've been ag and them's the beans the daily beans is written and executive produced by allison gill with additional research and reporting by dana goldberg sound design and editing is by desiree mcfarlane